Psalm 145, the superscript says it is, the, is a psalm of praise of David. Here's the word of God, friends. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And, ha- and his mercy is over all he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear them. He, fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, please add your blessing to our look at this glorious psalm of praise. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Why do we exist? What are you here for? Or, as the catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is true for the strong and for the weak, for the wealthy and the poor, for the sick and the healthy. Whether a person lived a thousand years before today, whether that person is born a thousand years from now, their purpose, your purpose is always the same. We exist to glorify the Lord. And this psalm's all about that. Psalm 145, it's the final of the psalms in the Bible that is credited to David. It opens the door to the final five psalms of praise that close the book with a resounding crescendo. It's a beautiful song. It's full of encouragement. It's full of joy. Interestingly, for those of you who are interested in such things, Psalm 145 is also an acrostic poem. Do you guys know what that means? It means each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's as if David wanted us to learn the ABCs of the glory of the Lord. There's one spot where that breaks, by the way. In verse 13, you have two verses squished into one, the way it's numbered. So 13 has two letters, the first line and the third line. But it goes from beginning to end of the Hebrew alphabet as it proclaims the praise of who God is. 
writing music like this took skill. And writing like this was helpful to Hebrew children so they could memorize the psalm. Well, today, I want us to just enjoy this psalm together. I really do. I want you, and I believe God wants you to enjoy this text. We're going to learn a thing or two, sure. But the focus here is far more about you and me praising our great God. Every verse, every section of this psalm, it's got something for us to think or to feel or to do. And with every proclamation of the glory of God, we're going to find ourselves called to do some things. We're going to be called to to meditate to think deeply on the attributes of God. We're going to be called to communicate the glory of God to other people. We're going to be called to celebrate God and all that He is and all that He does. But I want us to get ready and to enjoy praising the Lord together. And as we study this psalm, we're going to find five points as we walk through five sections of this beautiful psalm. So, point number one, if you're a note taker, praise God for His greatness. Praise God for his greatness. I want to start with verses 1 and 2. This will be verses 1 through 3, by the way. But 1 and 2 say, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David gives us three different words here for glorifying God in the first two verses. Extol means to lift up, to exalt, to raise high. Bless here means to bow down before and give honor to Praise is the word where hallelujah comes from. It means to praise, to shine forth, to boast in God. David declares that he intends to bring glory to God forever and ever, every day. No days going by where God is not worthy of praise. God's worthy of praise on days when everything's going fine. When the sky's blue and the birds are singing. And God's worthy of praise when tragedy strikes. Because regardless of your circumstances or mine, God is still perfect, holy, and king. What we're going to see with this point in the next, David is first going to tell us what to do, and then he's going to tell us why. Verses 1 and 2, the promise of David is he's going to praise God. Verse 3, he's going to say why he does so. But before we get there, I want you to notice a couple things with me. One, notice that we praise God as what? I will extol you, my God, and king. David praises God. He's going to promise to praise God as a great king. Now, you all know David was a king, right? But David looked at God and he said, God, you are my king. You're the big king. You're the ultimate king. David acknowledged God's total authority over him and over all kings. God is our Lord, our sovereign, our master, and we owe God obedience in every single slightest, smallest, greatest, whatever aspect of life. And I'll let you catch a little bit of the Hebrew poetry in these. I won't do this all the way through because some of you would revolt and run away. But look at verses 1 and 2. There are four lines of parallel Hebrew poetry. And by parallel, I mean to say that the lines say basically the same thing, only with little modifications. That's how the Hebrews sang. That's how they waxed poetic. They didn't didn't use rhyme schemes. They didn't count syllables the way we do in poetry. But look at the first lines of each verse here. 
The first line of verse 1 says, I will extol you, my God and King. And the first line of verse 2 says, every day I will bless you. Extolling and blessing are the same idea. So the phrases, I will extol you and I will bless you, are parallel phrases. So that gives you the hint. Oh, we're singing. We're being poetical here. The opening lines of each verse verse say that the psalmist is going to lift God up. Now, the lines aren't identical, right? Verse 1 calls God the king. Verse 2 says the praise is going to be an everyday part of the psalmist's life. But you could still say there are parallel elements in the lines. But the second lines of each verse, my goodness, they're almost identical. And bless your name forever and ever. And praise your name forever and ever. There's emotion and there's passion here in this repetition. The psalmist is declaring his commitment to lift God up from now through eternity. It's a daily part of his life. It's going to go on forever. One more thought before we go further. When you hear the word bless, if you think you've been blessed, you usually think about somebody doing you good, right? Oh, they blessed me by bringing me, well, yesterday Abigail blessed me by bringing me a deviled egg. I consider that a blessing, don't you? We think of blessing as having been brought goodness. When God blesses you, he brings you goodness. But, you ever thought about the fact that you cannot bring goodness to God? God is as good as God can be, and you can't add goodness to his goodness. You can't make God better. No, blessing here is the same as praising and extolling. To bless God is to say that God is, in fact, already blessed. To extol God, I said it means lifting up, but you can't lift God up as if you could put God a little higher than he was before. That's not within your skill set. It's not within mine. Extolling God is us pronouncing the truth that God is already the Most High. Instead of thinking of blessing as adding to God, think of it as ascribing what's true of Him. You say what's already there. You point it out. You, you, you magnify it in the sense that you show it to be there, but you don't change God. You can't add to Him. And by the way, here's one good thing about blessing God. You know what else you cannot do with God? You can't exaggerate him it's one of the people it's one of the things the reasons why people who are prone to odd exaggeration are great preachers because you know what we might overestimate a lot of things but you can't overestimate god but why why is the psalmist committed to praising god every day of his life from now through forever verse 3 says Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David's God is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of the Bible. And that God is worthy of praise because his greatness is unsearchable. He is triply great in this verse. You see the three greats, right? I remember back in college, some verses, some verses have like lifelong memories. And I've got a picture in my head of myself in college before I ever thought I would be involved in ministry at all, studying this psalm. 
And I was actually working on memorizing some verses of the Bible. And I learned this psalm in the 1984 version of the NIV. You guys remember that one? It's the one before they took all the, all the brothers out and made them brothers and sisters. Um, I still love the way the NIV renders this verse. And verse, verse 3 says in the NIV, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. I like that. It catches me. No one can fathom the greatness of our God. God's worthy of praise in part because you can't begin to fathom how great he is. Let's do a little exercise. Not literally. We are in the why, but we're not going to do literal exercise. I want you to try to get a picture in your mind of how great God is. I mean it. Work with me here. Think of a being who has all knowledge. Think of one who is without failing in any way. Think of a person bigger than the entire universe itself who can hold the universe in his hand. How big is this? Get the biggest picture you can hold in your mind. Do you have a big picture in your mind? Double it. Now, how big has the picture become? Get that firmly in your mind, how big it became. Now double it. Now double it again. Now double it again. You have not begun to scratch the surface of understanding the infinite greatness of a God whose greatness no one can fathom. It's like the last verse of Amazing Grace that says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You see why I think this is fun? Every line of this psalm is the thing that calls us to either meditate, communicate, or celebrate the glory of God. Maybe the lines will make you do two or even all three. As we begin here, you're meditating and celebrating if you're doing it right. God is greater than you can imagine. Meditate on that. Let it blow your mind. God is great, so great that he's worthy of your praise forever. Celebrate that. Commit yourself to celebrating God's greatness every day for as long as you live because he is your God, your king, and worthy of your life. When you realize this, then you will proclaim God's praise. You will give God glory. Now let's go on. Point number two, proclaim God's praise to others. Proclaim God's praise to others. I want to read verses four through seven now. They say, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud 
of your righteousness. What's the natural result of people knowing about this great, glorious king who is our God? They talk about him. This is the call to communicate about God to others. There's a neat little balance in the next section. The verses kind of alternate in subject, right? We see what they are going to do. Then the psalmist says what I'm going to do. And then it all kind of bounces back and forth as we praise the Lord. And verse 4 says, One generation will commend the works, tell the acts of God to the next generation. There's celebration of God here, but there's proclamation or communication of God's glory and God's, God's story. The Lord expects that part of you living for God's glory includes you making sure that the next generation hears about the glory of God. Now, pause here and think, Christians. How important is it in your life that somebody older told you the gospel? Not all of you would have been raised in Christian homes. But I'm just going to take a guess. That the vast majority of you heard the gospel when you were young. How many of you heard the gospel when you were young? Yeah. Most of, most of us came to faith in part, at least, due to the faithfulness of some older saint who wanted to be sure that we heard the gospel. Many people hear the gospel the first time from mom or dad. And that pattern of proclamation needs to continue as the kingdom of God continues. We need moms and dads who have babies and teach them the faith. We need grandmas and grandpas who share the good news of Jesus with grandkids. We need older men willing to tell the good news to boys and older women willing to teach girls. The gospel will march on as one generation tells the next generation of the might, the beauty, the power, the glory, and the story of God. And this practice of telling others about the glory of God, it ought to seem somewhat natural to you. Whenever I find a new restaurant with food I really like, or if I watch a really surprisingly good movie, which is rarer and rarer these days, or when I hear good new music, which that might have been oxymoronic, honestly, but I'm trying here. When I hear music I haven't heard before, that is good. You know what I do? Well, I mean, what do you do if you're sitting at the table and you take a bite of food that's really good? What do you do? You, 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 first, you make a noise. You tell people, this is good. And you probably, if you're like anyone in my family, say, have a bite of this. If you're not a sharer, my family will freak you out. <laughs> no, try it. No, we, we, we're not. My, my dad used to really make people do it. But... Um, we will offer you our food. That's just who we are, right? How many of you are food sharers, by the way? Yeah. yeah. No, amen. <laughs> and I understand that. Bless you, brother. <laughs> I ordered what I wanted. Leave me alone. But, but the truth is, I think most of us, when we come across a thing we like, even if you're not sharing it off of your plate, would tell somebody, this is good. You should try it. Isn't that how you work? 
Because you want other people to experience the good stuff too. Well, this is honestly the very same principle. Verse 5, David declares his commitment to meditate on the majesty and the works of of God. He's going to mull over the truth of God from the word of God. We should too. Verse 6, both them and David, they're going to speak of God's awesome deeds. David's going to declare God's greatness. We're back to communicating the glory of God. And then verse 7, we see a commitment to song. People who love the Lord will pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness. Pour forth is from a Hebrew word that means to burst forth like water in a spring. Yes, this is communicating the goodness of God, but it is overflowing. It's overwhelming joy. And what's it lead to? It leads to singing loudly. We all will joyfully sing of God's perfect righteousness. We will sing for the joy of praising God. We will seek to tell others of the goodness of God and will do it in song. Part of the act of praising, part of the joy of praising is communicating glory to others that they might praise too. C.S. Lewis used to say, joy is never complete until it, it, until it, is, it includes praise. Your joy of any event is not complete without you praising it. Which is why people look at the sunset, say wow, and take pictures. It's why you take a bite and say yum. It's why when your favorite player hits the ball over the fence about 425 feet, you get up and you yell. It's why all the goofballs were downtown yelling go Knights, go outside an arena. They weren't in. Why did they do it? Because they were sharing in the joy, and the joy was not complete without celebration. If you love Jesus, if you see the goodness in Jesus, it won't be complete till you praise. And this is why we sing. But it's also why we sing not just at home alone. We sing gathered together. The Bible calls us, Paul calls us in the Bible, that we are supposed to be teaching one another as we sing. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Did you hear that? You're supposed to be singing not only to the Lord. When you're here today, you're supposed to be singing to each other. By the way, that is the one major flaw in how you're sitting right now. I, I, look, there's drawbacks to everything we do, just like there are strengths to everything we do. If we were doing this really, 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 really right, I'm not sure you'd all be facing the same direction. Because it's actually good if you see each other's faces while you sing. Because you're not singing to me. Well, partly to me. But I'm just one of the hundred people you're singing to. You're singing to each other as you proclaim your truth the, the truth of your God. Make sense? We sing to teach and encourage each other. That's why worship is so vital. 
We teach one another. We communicate the glories of God's character and His works as we sing truth in gathered worship. It does not matter, by the way, whether you're a good singer. Some of you can amen that. Some of you can amen that for the people near you. No. You know what matters? Is that you sing the truth with joy. Together. We see in verses 4 to 7 a call to meditate on God's attributes, celebrate them in song, and communicate them to the next generation. Why? Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. I have another memory. This is my first semester of of, uh, Introduction to the Old Testament in seminary. That was a fun class. I had no earthly idea what I was doing, just so you know. I thought I knew things until I went to seminary, and then I realized, well, I'm a dum-dum. And I'm still working on that. The prof asked two questions of the class first day. He said, give me some words that describe God in the Old Testament. And students other than me, I didn't answer this question, responded with words like holy, wrathful, the judge, the lawgiver, Then he said, tell me about God in the New Testament. I didn't answer that question, but other students said, loving, kind, merciful, gracious. And I was really glad that I did not answer either of those questions out loud because the professor spent the rest of the class showing how the students had completely missed God's self-revelation in the Old Testament, because the God of the Old Testament is not one iota different than the God of the New Testament. Psalm 145.8 is taken almost verbatim from God's revelation of Himself to Moses in Exodus 34.6. But look at those descriptive words right there. God is gracious. That is, He gives favor to people who don't deserve it. How many of you, just quick quiz, are happy that God would give kindness and favor to someone who could not earn it. More of you should be happy about that, just so you know. God is merciful, which means He withholds the judgment that we deserve in favor of showing us kindness. How many of you are happy that's part of God's character? God is slow to anger. The... The literal Hebrew here is a phrase that says he's long in the nose. And what that meant to the Hebrews is that he's not short-tempered. He's patient. He's got a long fuse. He doesn't fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. Perhaps encompassing it all, God is great in loving kindness. This word for great, it's the same great as in verse 3. It's the great that's tied to the unsearchable, unfathomable greatness of God. God is great. He's abounding. He's infinite. Infinite in what? What is God great in? Wrath? Vengeance? Smiting of the wicked? Not here. This is the Old Testament, by the way. He's great in loving 
kindness. This is God's covenant-making, covenant-keeping love. It's His faithful commitment to the well-being of those whom He calls His own. God is rich in hesed. God's good to all. He's merciful over all He has made. God has been kind to all of creation. There is no person who has not received at least a little bit of the goodness of God. Spurgeon wrote this, quote, The Lord is good to all. No one, not even his fiercest enemy, can deny this. For the falsehood would be too barefaced, since the very existence of the lips which slander him is a proof that it is slander. He allows his enemies to live. He even supplies them with food and smooths their way with many comforts. For them the sun shines as brightly as if they were saints, and the rain waters their fields as plentifully as if they were perfect men. Is not this goodness to all? The two-verse pairing here, eight and nine, is a place where you should be meditating. Think about the characteristics of God described here. Yeah, it's the Old Testament. Look at it. God has always been the very same. He's good, kind, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, great in love. Meditate here. And where will that lead you? Well, leading up to this section, we saw that meditating on the wonderful deeds of God and God's glorious character, that will lead you to proclamation. And you're going to sing God's praise. You're going to celebrate. You're going to tell the next generation. And as we move forward, you're going to have a joyful desire to get under the Lord's authority because he's so good. Point number three, praise God as your king. Praise God as your king. Verses 10 to the beginning of 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Two things are going to praise God according to verse 10. His works and his saints will honor his name. People are going to praise God. God's holy, perfect deeds are also a standing testimony of His glory. The saints of God will speak not only of God in general, they will speak of the glory of the kingdom of God. We will magnify God's mighty power. Just pause for a second. Who in the world are the saints? Just let's make sure we got this right. Who are the saints? Everyone who is under the grace of Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you're a saint. And that's true even when you're a jerk. Why? Because saint is the title God has given you. Because you don't ever earn favor with God. Every bit of favor you have from God is a gift given you by grace, which means by grace, because of the righteousness of Jesus, God calls you saint. Love that. Why are the saints going to praise God? Verse 12 says that this is going to be to make known, to keep other people informed of God's mighty deeds and God's glorious, splendid kingdom. 
The meditation in verses 8 and 9 leads to communication and celebration. We know this God, all his works, even the people that he has made in his image are going to unite in praise of God. We're going to tell other people about God. We're going to naturally want people to know God. We want them to know God's glorious kingship. We want them to know God's mighty acts. And look at what you see when you think about the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is everlasting. It's forever. It's unassailable. It will never fall down. It will never fade. God's kingdom endures for all generations. God's dominion, God's rule, God's kingdom will never ever end. In our world, kings and nations rise and fall. Egypt fell. Assyria fell. Babylon fell. Persia fell. Greece fell. Rome, the thousand-year city, fell. No nation No nation has ever maintained total stability. The Soviet Union fell. Perhaps one day, if we don't repent of our sin, if we don't seek the righteousness that God commands, the United States very well can fall. But never will the kingdom of God collapse. Christ reigns in heaven today. And Christ awaits a day. Christ awaits a day. When he will return to this earth and he will reign forever. And nobody, no nation, no power, no movement, no war will ever remove him. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you realize the fact that Jesus is the forever king over all, that ought to impact you. Every person on earth has a choice to make. What's the choice? Will you, while you live, bow to Jesus and acknowledge him as your king? Or will you try to live for yourself or for somebody else's king? If you focus on yourself or somebody other than Jesus, you're backing the wrong king. But if you will come to Jesus in faith, God will graciously forgive you, change you, and make you into a citizen of God's kingdom. Come to Jesus. Get under his eternal lordship. If you know Jesus as king, you've got a reason to celebrate. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. What a glorious thing it is to be transferred from a defeated, soon-to-be-judged kingdom to the kingdom of God. From a citizen of the devil's kingdom to a citizen of God's kingdom. That's a good change. What a wonderful thing to be given the forgiveness of your sins. If you don't have it, bow to Jesus and ask him for grace. If you have the grace of God in Jesus, praise Jesus. Praise God as your king. Point number four. Praise God for his kind provision. 13 again to 16. In the middle of the verse, 
The next letter of the Hebrew alphabet would start us here. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Why is it good news that God's a king who will never be dethroned? Because God is faithful in word and work. He says what's right and good. He does what's right and good. What better leader could anybody have? Let me ask you just about the politicians you know. How many of you would say of the politicians you know, that one always says what's right and good and does what's right and good? You want Jesus as your king. As a king, our God's not just a ruler. He's a great sustainer. He catches us before we fall to complete ruin. He lifts up those who are bowed down, those who are burdened, those who bow themselves before him in humility. He feeds us. If you have food, it is from God. If you have not starved, you've been sustained by the mighty hand of God. All creatures, all people, all life on this earth is sustained by God's power and God's kindness. Hebrews 1 verse 3, talking about Jesus, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So talking about Jesus, the author of Hebrews says Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Were Jesus ever to hold back that power, were Jesus to ever put a stop to that word, the universe would instantly cease to exist. He is our great sustainer. And he is seated, as that verse tells us, upon the throne of God himself. Yes, God has allowed the world to be scarred by sin, but this only serves as a reminder to us of what we actually deserve and how gracious our God has been to us. We deserve, if we are judged by our own personal merits, we deserve God to judge us. We deserve immediate, total judgment. We deserve that our next breath would be in hell. But God feeds us. He cares for us. He gives us what we need at the proper time. He gives us mercy. Now, this all may not be exactly when we want it. God may not give us exactly as much as we greedily desire, but God gives to us what we need when it is best. Praise God for provision. Whether you've got everything you want, whether you don't, God has already given you more than you could ever earn on your own. Meditate on that fact. Give God thanks. Celebrate the goodness of the God who cares for you. Fifth point. Fifth point. Last point. Praise God for salvation. 17 to 19 first. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. In verse 17, we see God as righteous. In all his ways, he's righteous. You know what that means? That means God's always right. He's always good. 
He wrongs no one in any way. In years gone by, there were some people that really tried to make a point of it being okay for us to be angry with God about how life has gone. And I understand why they said that. They wanted people to be honest with God, and that's true. You should be always be honest with God. But if you know God is always right, anger with God cannot be a righteous response, can it? We, we may not understand. We may hate the circumstance. We may need comfort. But if we're mad at God... We need to repent and acknowledge that he is righteous in all his ways. But thankfully, God is always righteous regarding issues of salvation. Look at verse 18. It says, God is near to all who call on him in truth. Nobody's going to cry out to God in truth and have God ignore them. Verse 19 says, God hears the cry of the one who fears him. He hears the cry. He saves them. I want to point out a couple things real quick about calling on God in truth. First, calling on God in truth means you cannot pretend or play games with God. You can't pretend. I'm going to pretend to cry out to God because I want heaven. I think you're going to fool him. It doesn't work like that. God knows if you believe. God knows if you want to follow him. Secondly, understand that calling out to God in truth means that you've got to understand the actual truth of who God is. There are people who want to redefine God in accord with their thinking and their desires instead of following what the Bible teaches about God. But if you make up a God who is not the real God, who's not the God of the Bible, rightly read and interpreted, if you deny who Jesus really is, you will have no salvation. Only the one who calls on the true God honestly will be saved. I hesitate to tell this story, but I did write it in my notes. Just this week, saw a video, I had an Instagram thingamabob shared with me. There was a church, I put that in quotation marks, reciting what they called the Sparkle Creed. Anybody see this? Okay, we did the Nicene Creed today, something that dates itself from the 4th century. Talks about the true God of the Bible. These people were absolutely, completely redefining God to fit the LGBTQ agenda. They redefined the standards of God. They redefined the ways of God. They redefined salvation. They redefined exactly how God has revealed himself. And no matter how sincerely the people in that building believed they were calling out to God, they were not calling out to God in truth. They were calling out to their own imagination. The only way you can cry to God in truth is if you call out to God as God has revealed himself in the Bible because that is the revelation of God to man. Verses 20 and 21. 
The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord, let, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. God preserves those who love him. There's our kind, loving, righteous, gracious, merciful God. He's near us when we cry out to him. He's faithful to save. But if God is faithful to save us, there must be something from which we need saving. Verse 20 says, God will destroy all the wicked. Come to God honestly in Jesus and he will save you. Fail to do so and you are with the wicked and you will face the wrath of God. God is perfectly righteous. He will save people righteously. He will judge people righteously. I love the design of this psalm. It's all praise, right? It's all joy. There's judgment, but only at the last moment. God is slow to anger, great in loving kindness, and that's how he's treated every human being. None of us have yet suffered the wrath of God. You have never suffered the wrath of God. How do I know? Because if you had, you would be in hell. And there is still time, if you have breath in your lungs, there is still time that you might call on Jesus Christ for salvation. Cry out to God. Come to him through the sacrificial work of Jesus. Avoid being the wicked who will be destroyed by the holy, righteous God. Come to Christ and praise God for salvation. The psalm, it feels like all of history. Just like the end of the age, God's wrath is put off to the very end of the psalm. But you know what else is true? Just like the end of the age, the last word is eternal praise. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Commit yourself to an eternal life of praise. Commit all of yourself. Commit forever. Meditate on the glory of God and God's righteousness. Communicate his deeds to other people. Tell people of God's mighty acts and celebrate the goodness of God. Sing joyfully of his righteousness. This is praise and our God is worthy. So let's exalt his holy name forever and ever. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Psalms. I thank you for teaching me of your greatness, of your worth, of your glory. I pray for every person here today that we will be encouraged. I really do. I pray for joy in every soul here. I pray, I pray that you will give us a picture of who you are for us to meditate on. 
I pray that you will give us your words of truth for us to celebrate. I pray you'll give us open doors that we might communicate the gospel to others. All in all, God, I just pray that we will truly be people who praise you rightly with all we've got and that we'll find the joy in living to your glory. I ask that for us in Jesus' holy name. Amen.